the New Testament in its world, with Mike Bird. The Catholic letters are not the after-dinner mints, okay? They are a, a feast all on their own merit. Welcome to the New Testament in its world, a super series based on the brilliant book by the same name. My name's Mark Hadley, and I'll be leading us through the brain of one of the authors, Dr. Michael Bird, lecturer in theology at Australia's Ridley College. Now, along with Tom Wright, Mike has written the New Testament in its world, but he's also authored about 30 books in the field of biblical studies. First of all, though, this morning, what we really want to know is what sort of tea he's drinking. This morning, Mark, I'm having English breakfast, the Mildura blend. Uh, it's one of my, it's actually probably my favorite English breakfast tea. Now explain to me, what is the differentiation between English breakfast tea, bog standard, uh, and English breakfast tea from Mildura? Um, I don't know, it just has a slightly different taste. I don't know the the exact recipe or what it is or whether they sprinkled in the sweat of AFL players. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but... It's got a distinct flavour and I likes it. It certainly would have a distinct flavour if NFL players were involved. Okay, well, this morning's topic, what are Catholic letters about? What are the Catholic letters about? So there are Catholic letters in the Bible, which was a surprise to me. Uh, is that where we get all of our teaching about the Pope? That is not where we get our teaching about the Pope. In fact, uh, the New Testament says nothing about the Pope. It, it does talk a little bit about the Apostle Peter and, you know, on this rock I will build my church, but nothing explicitly about the Pope. When we mean Catholic letters, we're not actually talking about the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking what Protestants would normally call the general epistles, which is roughly from, uh, well, goes from uh, the book of Hebrews all the way through to the letters of John. So effectively, those letters that weren't written by Paul. Uh, pretty much so. Pretty much so. The the uh, the other cast of apostles and authors who contributed to our New Testament. Uh, just as an aside, do we know much about all of those authors? Are we fairly certain about those authors? Or is it one of those situations where every academic has a different idea about who wrote it? Oh, every academic has a different idea about different things all the time. Uh, like, the, I mean, take the book of Hebrews. I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, many in the early church, particularly in the West, in the Latin church, uh, thought Hebrews was close enough to Paul's letters to be written by Paul. So a lot of people, uh, even in the old King James Bible, used to call it, you know, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, the only thing I can say with certainty about the letter to the Hebrews, it was not written by Paul. That's literally the only thing. That is the only thing I could be certain about. Uh, after that, have no idea. Was it someone like an Apollos, maybe even a Priscilla? Who knows? Uh, we just don't know. We don't know. Someone probably connected with the Pauline circle, but it's definitely not Paul. And Hebrews actually is a very good link between the Pauline letter collect collection and these Catholic epistles, since um, Hebrews seems to be in some ways it, perhaps influenced by Paul. Uh, it's got a very big focus on the atonement and, and uh, the death of Christ, but the author also uh, kind of goes in their own direction. You know, got, they're very big on the, the exaltation of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus, Jesus as, you know, being greater than the angels and that type of thing. And there's a lot of exhortations not to fall away, not go back, not to go back to Judaism as a kind of 
safer social location since, you know, Jews rather than Christians have a better relationship with Roman authorities and that type of thing. So Hebrews is a really good entree into the Catholic letter collection. And the connection would be that there's more exhortation in the rest of the Catholic letters? What, what are you connecting it with? Well, it's 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 Hebrews is kind of similar to Paul in some respects, but also similar to the rest of the Catholic letters because there's a number of... I mean, the, the, each of the Catholic letters is very, very uh, different. I mean, they're doing different things. Like the letters of John, you've got three letters of John, one of which is a fairly circular letter to various churches around Asia Minor. Then you've got uh, one letter, Second John, it's written to a specific church, and then Third John written to a specific individual. You've got First Peter, which is written for a number of churches in northern um, Turkey. Um, and, and, and across these, there's a, there's a number of common themes. Uh, there's a big connection between the Old Testament and the Christian gospel. That's a big theme across all the Catholic letters. Big themes about enduring under suffering and, and hardship. I mean, you find that in the Epistle of James. You find that in 1 Peter. You find that uh, also in Hebrews. Uh, there's also a, a big connection with remaining faithful to Jesus, you know, that type of thing. And a lot of exhortations towards, you know, uh, avoiding contamination from the world, re remaining faithful to God and to Christ. So Hebrews is a, a good kind of book that gives you a little bit of a, some Pauline themes, but kind of also prepares you for a lot of the similar stuff that's going to happen in the rest of the Catholic letters. Well, speaking of similar stuff, do the authors of the Catholic letters actually know each other? Are they a uh, crew, so to speak? Yeah, well, I wouldn't put them as a kind of um, a posse or kind of like a boy band or a girl band. It's it's not <laughs> like it's the the Spice Girls or anything like that. Um, I mean, if, if, if you've got Peter writing First Peter and, and, and you know, the Apostle John or a, or an analogous John writing his letters. I I think many of them did know each other or they were known to each other. In the case of Hebrews, uh, we don't know. We don't know at all. Um, it, it'd be good if they kind of, you know, got to every year, had an annual conference every year where they got together and discussed all their writings and all their le letters and literary activities. That, that, that would be a good conference. I mean, it'd be terrific getting someone like Luke and Paul and John to sit down and have kind of like a a podcast or a panel discussion on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, but that, that's the task of biblical theology, to try to bring those voices together and see what we could say if they came up with a, with a joint statement. Well, that takes us into your speciality. But let me have a look at the history for a moment surrounding the uh, Catholic letters. Let me see. We've got seven to eight letters and then those ones which Paul added. Does that make for a very literate community it doesn't sound to be a lot of written records there yeah. or is that say the opposite uh no the the early christians seem to have been very bookish now depending on how you measure it um liter literacy rates in the world would be between between you know five to fifteen percent depending how you define literacy you know uh, are you able to write and read at the level of like homer as opposed to you know, write a little bit of graffiti on a wall that, you know, Herodias is a doofus or something <laughs> like that. You know, there's all, there's different types of literacy. Uh, but the, the Christians seem to have been particularly bookish. Uh, they were really into reading, writing, copying, and sharing literature. Now, obviously, that's partly indebted to their Jewish heritage 
because they had a, a very high view of the the Jewish scriptures, mostly in their Greek form that we call the Septuagint. But they also wrote their own literature, their own books about Jesus. They wrote letters to one another. They copied these letters. They carried around. They shared them with others. And that's when you get the sort of burgeoning growth of Christian literary activity uh, that then uh, crystallizes into the New Testament and, 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 and in many senses even continues into the second and third, fourth centuries. And it certainly helped by the invention of new media, which is uh, something like the Codex, which is the creation of a type of a small book. So rather than use scrolls where you you, know, you only write on one side and, you know, if, if you've got like a, a 30 foot scroll, I mean, it, it takes a long way to kind of, you know, literally scroll through where you want to get up to. But whereas a book, it's a little bit more um, even. And so you get this sort of new culture, the invention of the the codex that became a, very popular. And Christians really do use these for their little collections of things like the four gospels or the Paul's letters or uh, the Catholic letters themselves uh, become their own dis discrete collection uh, called the Apostolos. And it's the Catholic letters together with the book of Acts become this little, um, if you like, uh, volume three of the New Testament collection. So it's very much like a pocket reading uh, once we get the proto book. Yeah, basically, that's that's the way to put it. This is kind of like the proto book. I mean, they don't have the printing press yet, uh, but this is kind of a, a new media that is, I think, far more useful. Uh, and, and one interesting thing about Christians is they try to do everything they could to make reading more user friendly, because in, in some senses, um, the ability to read, write, copy was kind of elitist, and, and you wanted to guard that. So you, at one sense, you wanted to make it hard as possible to kind of use and handle uh, the, these works. Christians seem to have wanted to uh, d democratize the ability to use um, uh, media like writings and try to make it easier um, by offering sort of hints, you know, indenting columns, giving little notes for readers and that type of thing. So they tried to make uh, reading a lot easier uh, for people, particularly for those who may have been literate but didn't belong to the elite literary class or the sort of scribal class in the ancient world, the, the professional scribe or copyist. Well, speaking of the ancient world, in a previous episode, you talked about how valuable it was to have Paul's letters to inform us about the world itself in which Paul was writing. How valuable is it to have these other voices? So what sort of visions of the ancient world do they actually give us? Yeah, well, we learn we learn quite a lot. Uh, let me give an example. In the case of First Peter, you, you learn a lot about the plight of slaves in the ancient world. I mean, Peter is writing to Christians, many of whom are slaves and are in a position of servitude, you know, often exploitation of all sorts. And he's trying to encourage them in their faith, uh, in that kind of situation. Uh, the Epistle of James that seems to be written, I suspect to Christians in rural Galilee or maybe Syria or, or something like that. And he's giving them a series of ex exhortations um, uh, about ha how to have a, have a faithful Christian, dare I say, synagogue of, of their own kind in, in that context. So it's a very a Jewish world he's writing to with Jewish concerns, Jewish allergies to, to certain things, but it's, it's suffused with with content that's very similar to the teaching of Jesus, and he offers his own exhortation to the audience, uh, and 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 then and you get some of the things like what what is it like to be a a you know a person in Syria or Galilee, um, where the uh, landless poor can be exploited, where the rich can drag you into court, that type of thing. So there's a whole bunch of 
windows into that world, which in turn, I think, helps us understand um, what the authors are saying, what they're on about, and maybe give us a few tips as to how we can apply the New Testament today. Okay, so we've got rural Jewish audiences as one particular audience. We've got uh, people who are actually within the heart of the empire itself. Are there any other particular audiences that get drawn out by these letters? Oh, well, I mean, here's, here's the irony. The Catholic letters are called the Catholic letters because it's assumed they were written for a universal audience. Okay, so they're, they're in that sense, the Catholic. Uh, the, re the reality is I don't think any of them were truly intended for a universal audience. They were all intended, I think, for a specific audience. So the book of Hebrews, I think, was intended uh, for Christians largely in Rome or, or, or Italy, uh, at least, exhorting them to remain faithful in light of persecution and pressure to revert back to Judaism. I think the Epistle of Jude is written to Christians in, in, in Palestine, uh, probably in, in, the, in the aftermath of the uh, Judean-Roman War. Uh, First Peter is written to people, I think, in uh, northern Asia Minor. Uh, the Epistles of John, I think, are written to you know, people, churches, individuals uh, in um, southwestern uh, and southern Asia Minor. James, like, as we just said, is written to people in probably uh, Galilee or Syria or something like that. Now, there's a little bit of guesswork in here. I'm not saying this is 100% certain, but these are fairly reasoned and our best educated guesses. So that there is a certain uh, specificity or particularity in the, in the audience they're writing to. And you, and you can kind of pick that up when you read the, the individual letters. You get a sense, uh, though, I guess from uh, church life itself, the, the common explanation is these letters were written to be passed around. Are you saying that's the case or are you saying that that was more like a byproduct of the of the world itself that they did end up getting passed around? I, I think they they were uh, part they were indeed passed around. I don't know whether they were intended uh, like the the person who wrote to the to the Hebrews, I was think uh, was was very conscious of this being sent to the initial audience. Um, may not have had a thought about how this would be used elsewhere. Now, Hebrews is a good example of a text that although it was focused on a specific context, a specific time, uh, it, it says things which resonate through the church in other places throughout the ages, you know, like hold fast to Jesus, you know, look, look to the great hall of faith, look to those who are faithful uh, ahead of you. You know, remember Jesus, you know, the, the, the uh, his ascension is like an anchor for your soul, that type of thing. So there's things that would obviously resonate with people far, far away from the original audiences, both in space and time. Uh, probably the one letter that was intended to be circulated wider was uh, the first epistle of John. But th that, I think, was written for a network of churches within Asia Minor itself. Um, I don't know whether John was thinking about this having read in Spain or even in Sydney in the 21st century, but that was a letter that was kind of meant for a, a um, uh, sharing and um, reading and in, in, in publicly in churches, that type of thing. But it just kind of went wider than the jo uh, Johannine network. So I notice in your book, there's a sense where uh, the Pauline letters are balanced out by the, the Catholic epistles. Can you describe that balance to us? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a there was a scholar called David Newenhouse who wrote a uh, a book a few years ago called Not by Paul Alone, 
And it's basically, uh, it's a great title, by the way, and it's a quite, great way of summarizing um, the Catholic letters. Uh, because, you know, you've got, you've got your what's called the Tetra-Evangelium, which is the four Gospels, and you can, you can add Acts onto that if you like. Then you've got Paul's letters, and, you know, Paul is pushing certain themes pretty hard, particularly in places like Galatians and Romans and Philippians. Justification by faith apart from works of the law was saved by grace, not by works. Uh, and then you get some of the Catholic authors are saying, okay, look, look, that's not wrong, but let's make sure we nuance that. And that's why someone like the author of Hebrews um, adds very, very clearly a whole a whole uh, series of arguments, very intricate, very weaved together with parts of the Old Testament uh, about the necessity of perseverance, you know, of keeping on the trucking in the faith, if you'd like. In the 5th century, Bishop Augustine of Hippo wrote a work about the correct relationship between faith and works. He declared at one point, Even in the days of the Apostles, certain somewhat obscure statements of the Apostle Paul were misunderstood, and some thought he was saying this, Let us do evil that good may come from it, Romans 3 verse 8. Because he said, Now the law intervened that the offence might abound. But where the offence has bounded, grace has abounded yet more. Romans 5 verse 20. Since this problem is by no means new and had already risen at the time of the apostles, other apostolic letters of Peter, John, James and Jude are deliberately aimed against the argument I have been refuting and firmly uphold the doctrine that faith does not avail without good works. Uh, in the second chapter of James, uh, you, you get the impression, well, at least I get the impression, that James is not attacking Paul per se, but he does want to attack a distortion of Paul. Okay, Now, Paul himself was, uh, was aware that his teachings uh, could be taken in an antinomian direction. That's to say, look, I've been saved by grace, therefore I can just go on being morally lax or licentious because I'm under grace, not law. Uh, Paul was aware of that. Paul was aware of that in both chapter th uh, 3, verse 8, and chapter uh, 6, verse 1 of, of Romans. He kind of tackles that, you know, like, let us do evil that good may abound, as some people slanderously accuse me of saying, or um, shall we go on sitting so that grace may increase? Oh, by, by no means. You know, Paul was aware that, he, that his teaching could be taken in a somewhat licentious direction or as a license for being comfortable in sin land rather than living comfortably in grace land. Um, and James, I think, is dealing with that kind of distortion uh, in, in, in chapter two of his, his uh, own epistle. If there was one thing you'd like people to walk away with when they think of the Catholic epistles, what is it that you'd like them to keep? Oh, I, th I think one of the, the number one things to take away uh, would be that there is a, a, a series of exhortations to the churches that on the one hand have the, the imprint of a uh, specific time, a specific location, specific issues and concerns, and yet they're also very, very applicable to the church in every age. Now, whether that's in Hebrews, that's in 1 John, or Jude. I mean, let me give you, give you a couple of examples. Let's take the Epistle of Jude. I think this is written to a group of churches um, somewhere in Palestine after the Judean Rebellion, where some other people have come in and because of their own, dare I say, licentiousness or their kind of more moral laxity, they're potentially corrupting the congregations there. 
and Jude's telling them, don't have anything to do with them, okay? Uh, you know, uh, hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints. And then he adds a whole bunch of things about the necessity of perseverance. Now, you could argue that that exhortation, I think, is relevant uh, in, in every age. Or you could take something about the epistles of John, uh, the first epistle where you've got the big themes of um, of love, love of your fellow brother and sister in Christ, um, and, and holding to the truth of the gospel. Now, if you want to think of two things that sum up what churches and Christians should be about, love and truth really should be paramount. So these are parts of the New Testament that are ordinary get, get neglected. People know about them vaguely, but there really is a treasure stuff. So, you know, don't, don't think that once you've got to Paul's letters, you've really um, had the lion's share of the New Testament and the rest of, of the New Testament is the after dinner men. So that's probably what I would say. Okay. That the, the Catholic letters are not the after dinner mints. Okay. Uh, they are a, a, a venerable feast uh, all on their own, all on their own merit. Michael, thanks very much this morning for just explaining all of that and the Catholic letters to us. Uh, if you would like to hear more about what Mike has to say about the New Testament, then I'd encourage you to dig back into the rest of the episodes of the New Testament in its world. Uh, and we'll actually have extra notes uh, relating to the book itself uh, inside of the show notes. So it's another one way to get a brief summary of what's going on in that particular book before you dive into it for yourself. Until the next time, though, we'll be actually looking at our next topic, which is how do we live out the New Testament based on Mike's book itself. So we'll look forward to chatting to you then. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network, eternitypodcasts.com.au.